right, all right. Once again, good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody here and also those listening on our podcast channel. Now, a quick recap from two weeks ago when Pastor Joey was teaching us. He taught from Exodus 28, and he taught that God told the priests it was time to suit up, to get ready. God had taken his people from slavery in Egypt into a full knowledge of how to worship and service in his ministry. And that was not just ancient prescription, but a shadow of things to come in Christ. No words were wasted in the scripture from the first to the last, and everything, everything was about pointing forward to Jesus Christ. So tonight, we're going to continue. We're going to jump into Exodus chapter 30. So if you have your Bibles or on your phone, whatever, Exodus chapter 30. So to start off, we're going to read through verses 1 to 5, and then we're going to see what God is telling the Israelites to do. So Exodus 30, uh, verses 1 to 5. This is what it says. Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide, and two cubits high. It's horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So what's being described here is an altar, and it's an altar for burning incense within the holy temple. The altar is to be one cubic square, cubit square on all sides and two cubits high. So a cubit is actually about 20 inches. It's supposed to be the tip from your elbow to your middle finger. And so it's going to be 20 inches square on the top and about 40 inches tall. That's roughly the size of it. And it's going to have rings on either side. So when they moved it, they could put poles through there and they would carry it. And that's how they got it around safely. The whole thing was to be overlaid with gold. And I want to include a picture of what we think it may have looked like to give you kind of an idea. Well, actually quite beautiful, covered in gold like that. But that's what it was. And now that we know what the altar of incense looked like, let's read some of the next verses and see where God wants it placed. It's going to be verse 6. He says, Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the Covenant Law. This is important. Where I will meet with you. So the altar is to be placed within the tabernacle, but not in the Holy of Holies. Now, as it described, there was a very large curtain, we also call that the veil, that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the tabernacle. And the altar of incense was placed just outside the Holy of Holies. In fact, there's the curtain, and it kind of makes it sound like the Ark of the Covenant was on one side of the, t- of the curtain, and the altar of incense was just outside on the other side. And just that curtain separated them. Now, the altar of incense was not the only thing within that part of the temple. The area also contained the golden lampstand and a table of showbread. Now, the lampstand represented God's testimony, his word going out among the people. And just like the lampstand would have been a bright, shining spot within the temple, his word was to do the same in the world, to be a bright, shining light for the rest of the world. The table of the showbread it actually represented God's communion with his people, him and his people coming together within the temple. And now, now we have the altar of incense, and its sweet-smelling incense, its fragrance, represented the prayers of the people rising up to God. All right, now, now that we've heard all these last few words in verse 6, this is what matters most. The words are where God says, where I will meet with you. So all this is about where God is going to meet with his people. God gives very specific instructions on, if you notice, each little piece, everything that's supposed to be in there, even how big it's supposed to be, how you're supposed to carry it, stuff like that. 
And the whole thing is about where he's going to meet with his people. And the way to think of that is this is where the holy, our eternal God, is going to meet with us, us mortal people, us sinful people, and this is where we're going to come together. Now, as we continue to study this chapter, I want you to keep that, uh, that set up in mind and look out for each instruction that God gives because there's always a reason for it. There's a reason, he said, to do it this way and then do it this way. And, you're gonna, and we're going to put all the pieces together to see how they fit into this larger uh, puzzle. And it's really, really quite beautiful because everything that we're going to read about relates to Jesus Christ and how this is foreshadowing what's to come, right? So now let's look at the next verses. We're going to look through verses 7 to 9. And we're going to read about this, how the incense is to be burned, but it also is going to come with a warning. So verse 7, Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight. So incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering. And do not pour a drink offering on it. So Aaron the high priest is to burn incense every single day as part of his priestly duties. Incense is going to be burned in the morning and then again in the evening. Right? And again, the incense, the smoke rising, is going to represent the prayers of the people rising up to, the, to God. And God's intent with this, being done every day, twice a day, is that we are to pray to him continually. It's supposed to happen daily. It's just supposed to be part of how we operate. And that's Aaron represents that for the people. Right? And this intent actually continues all the way through the New Testament. There's a great verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. It tells us to rejoice always... And pray without what? Ceasing. To pray without always, continually. It's just simply part of who we are. Now, while God wants, he does want his people to pray constantly, and the incense represents this, there's also some guidelines that we see that God is putting in this area. When Aaron and the other priests burn incense, they're not allowed to burn any other type of incense on this altar. They're not allowed to put any other offerings on there, any grain offerings, any burnt offerings. No drink offerings. And this, the reason for this is very important. The sacrifices for the atonement, the burnt offerings, the drink offerings, all that stuff had its place. It's very important and that's great, but those are all completely separate from the altar of incense and what it represents. Remember, the, the incense represents our prayer life, our connection to God, right? And our connection to God through prayer is something that's supposed to happen no matter what is happening in our lives, no matter what else is going on, no matter what we did, good, bad, whatever, it doesn't matter. All that's over here. What's to remain constant and untouched is our prayer life with God. That's the idea behind that. And this is only, there was only supposed to be one particular type of incense that was to be burned on this altar. It was not to be used anywhere else. And again, this represents our prayer life with God. It's supposed to remain pure and true. Now, the truth is, obviously, throughout our lives, we do things wrong. We need to repent. We need to work on relationships, all that stuff. And that's great. We do need to do that. But no matter what's happening in our lives, our prayer life is to remain constant. The other thing God wants us to know is that our prayer life um, is that all, everything that we do, is our prayer doesn't affect our salvation. There's nothing that we do that affects our own salvation. We don't earn good marks by praying more or doing more, whatever. Again, all that's separate. It's the, our prayer life is just simply us communicating with God. What's really beautiful about that is that shows how much God truly values a relationship with us. Just simply 
to communicate with us, where we talk to him and he talks back, no matter what's going on. All right? And that's what that's about. Now we're going to ver- jump ahead to verses 11 and 12, because now God's going to get into a census and how he wants that to be taken. So verses 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on you when you number them. Okay, this is some heavy-duty stuff. God's instructing Moses that when they take a census, and a census is exactly the way it sounds, you count the number of people, right? Each person has to pay a ransom, which is literally a dollar amount for their own life. The Israelites, now this dollar amount was paid directly to God through the temple. Now the Israelites were not allowed to take their own census anytime they wanted. That was the idea with the, the plague behind that. And the idea that comes from that is kings back then, if you had a king, the king essentially owned you. Everything about you, your money, your wealth, you had to pay. The king was in control. So God would not allow them to have allegiance to anyone else. It was only to him. He's who allowed them to take the census. And when they did take a census, they had to pay a ransom to him because he was their savior. He is their redeemer. So this was a public display of ownership of God and his people. And when the Israelites did this, when they paid their ransom, they were agreeing to their part that, yes, I belong to God. Now, the next few verses, verse 13 to 16, describe a little more about this ransom. So let's read this now. Verse 13. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half a shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. Number, verse 14, all who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half a shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make an offering to the Lord. To do what? To atone for your lives. So this is, this is actually where, in my opinion, it gets really interesting. Everyone 20 years or older is to pay a half a shekel. Everyone. And that idea, what it shows is that every single person owes this to God. This is not a free will offering. This is not like, hey, when you feel like giving a little, go ahead, throw it in the basket. This is something, it's a requirement. And again, God, you owe this to God. And interestingly, everybody owns, excuse me, owes the exact same amount. The rich don't owe more, the, le- the, the poor don't owe less. This, this indicates that everybody is guilty equally, regardless. As for example, if you have a rich uncle, he can't pay for everybody in your family. <laughs> don't work that. Every single person has to pay, no matter what. Each person is responsible for their own actions, their own choices in life. And again, this was for atonement. Now, this is, this command, within this command is a very important idea. The money, giving that money is not what atones for your sin. The money, when you give that, it marks you as belonging to God. You're saying, I belong to the Lord. This is my payment. You're saying, I need to be atoned. Now, just like when we do baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of what you believe in your heart, what's happening on the inside. So this tax, when you paid that, you're saying, I belong to the Lord. I need to be atoned for. That's what this is about. Now, what's interesting is this half shekel, what they had to pay, in time would become the regular temple tax. You're going to hear about that through the Bible. And just like we've talked before, when Jesus, that one time when he got angry and he was in the temple courtyard and he overturned the temple, the tables, and he chased them out. Well, what was happening then is, 
what we had just described had turned into a regular temple tax. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders were charging, overcharging people. They were taking a portion for themselves. They were overcharging for the sacrificial animals. So now if you keep in mind how God started this with Moses, where it was an atonement tax, you're saying, I belong to the Lord. I need to be atoned for, and you paid your tax. And then you fast forward to Jesus' time, where the religious leaders turned that into a scheme to make money for themselves. You can see why Jesus got angry and just turned everything over because they had completely destroyed what was a beautiful thing, and they simply did it for money. Now, the next part of a verse describes the special washing and that Aaron and the other priests are required to do before they approach the holy areas of the temple. Now, we've talked before about what would happen if somebody went into the holy of holies when they weren't properly prepared. Do you remember what happened? They would die. They would be struck down. So this is part of that description. Let's read that now. It's verses 17 to 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of the meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of the meeting, they shall wash with water so that what? They will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to, adm- to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and their feet, so what? They will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for generations to come. So here's a brief picture of what this may have looked like. We don't really have dimensions. This is the one of the things that God did that we can find that I can't find that God said make it four feet higher, whatever. But it was a wash basin. It was made out of bronze, and they made bronze because it would have lasted longer. You know, iron would eventually rust. And it's, what's interesting is this was placed in the courtyard in front of the tent of the meeting. And the, plea, and the police, the, excuse me, the priests were required to wash their hands and their feet. And again, this was not a suggestion. This wasn't like, hey, if you feel a little dirty, do it. This was an absolute requirement, right? And if they didn't do it or didn't do it right, what would happen? They'd be struck down. So this is very serious. And let's, let's also talk about why this is such a big deal. Especially this is important today because a lot of times when we talk about sin, doing things wrong, sin doesn't mean as much as now as it used to. Nowadays when we say sin, we say, well, you can just say you're sorry and it's no big deal. You know, it's not that big a deal. Back then, sin was huge. Now, always sin is huge for God. It's complete affront to God. All right? And this is because, because of our sin, we cannot be in his presence. For example, this is one of the best examples. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve? What happened? They ate from the apple. They didn't commit mass murder. They didn't rape. They, did, they didn't knock over a whole bunch of banks. You know what I mean? What did they do? They ate from an apple. They ate from a tree they were not supposed to. And what happened because of that one sin? They were kicked from the Garden of Eden. But that's not all. When they were removed from the Garden of Eden, God placed an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance so they could never return. Now think about that for a second. It wasn't just an angel with a sword. It was an angel with what? A flaming sword. It's like putting a ninja with machine guns. I know it sounds funny, but, it, but, but think about that. If there was ever a one-way door, that is it. It was sin. their sin, that one sin was enough that they were forever banished. 
from the Garden of Eden. And just like with just one sin, whatever we do, we have no ability to change our fate. Our fate is sealed. We are sinful. So now let's put ourselves in the priest's shoes or sandals. It's your time to go into the temple. And you've been sacrificing animals all day in the hot sun. So now there's the, the wash basin. You're just going to do a quick rinse and then head in? Or are you going to take time? And I mean take time. Make sure you're clean. Maybe do it twice. Make sure your feet are clean. Because if you get it wrong, what happens? This is not a revolving door. And why is that? Because we are sinful. And this is what's ironic about this, this situation to a degree. The priests were not average Joes just within the Israelite community. They were a very select group of individuals from a very specific family line. They have to live differently than the general public. They have to be holier, which means they, they can't just eat anything. There's restrictions on how they dress, who they marry, how they worship. Everything is prescribed by God and laid out. And this is the priestly class we're talking about. They have to do all that, all that. And even then, they're still at risk of dying if they don't wash before they go into the temple. And all this points to the fact that sin, even stuff that we consider small infractions, completely separates us from God. And it prevents us from getting anywhere near God. Being that sinful costs us our lives. So sin is a very, very serious business. And removing that and getting us back on track is what all this is about. This is why God is doing this. So what we're seeing is God teaching the world through the Israelites how awful sin is. And he's laying down these beginning steps on this process to have it removed. Now we know that Jesus and his death on the cross is the completion of all that, right? So what we're seeing though is the very beginning. Now, the next part of the chapter, God gives instructions on the anointing oil and how it's to be made and what it's to be used for. It starts at verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel and a hin of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. So these verses describe the holy anointing oil, and these ingredients are all sweet-smelling. It would have been very nice. And the purpose of the oil is that it's going to be used to anoint everything that goes into the tabernacle and the temple. And the word anoint means to make holy, to separate. Like you have the profane, the sinful, the worldly and normal stuff, and then you have the holy, right? And so this is what's going to set this apart. Now, this is going to sound funny, but this is actually true. The articles that they're about to anoint on a Tuesday, they would have been normal everyday stuff. But once it's anointed with this holy oil, it's now holy and it's part of God's world, right? They were to be set apart. So the things that were anointed were the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of incense, the altar for burnt offerings, the utensils they used for the sacrifices, the wash basin, even the priests themselves were to be anointed with this. They were to be set apart, different and holy. So, and the reason the priests had to be marked as holy because they were going to come in contact with all these other articles, 
So like we've stated before, everything about the tabernacle, the entire thing represented the different levels of holiness as you got closer and closer to God. So let's look at this one slide again. This is an example of what the tabernacle may have looked like in the desert. So outside this area was where all of us dudes and dudettes can hang. This is just normal everyday stuff. Once you go inside of there, you step up in holiness. And that's where the priests go. That's where the altar for the sacrifice. There would have been the waspation. And before you could go farther close to the tent, what would the priests have to do? Wash. And then they could go inside. And then with inside of here is a whole other section separated by the, another veil. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was the Holy of Holies. So this, this whole thing represents our path to God, which is increasing levels of holiness. So at each step that brought us closer to God, a higher level of holiness was required. And if there was any infractions, any problems, there were serious consequences. Now again, to show this, the impact of sin and how the holy oil separates out the things that are anointed from the rest of the world, let's read from verses 31 to 33. We're going to read specifically about God's warning about this anointing oil. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on anyone else's body and do not make any other oil using the same formula. It is sacred and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes a perfume like it and puts it on anyone other than a priest must must what? Be cut off. And that's huge. Cut off. You were living in the desert. You would have been banished for misusing anointing oil. So the point of this warning from God is that to be part of his people, to be part of his family recognizes that he is holy and you are not. And within that, there is a way to come closer, at least through the priestly class. But within that, you have to follow his instructions to the T. And this includes the anointing oil. It can't be used for regular human purposes. Now, the last part of this chapter switches from the holy anointing oil to the incense. And the incense we're going to see is just as important as the anointing oil, right? But it plays a different part. It represents our prayers. So let's read God's instructions about that and let's talk about it. It's going to be verses, uh, sorry, verse 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices, gum resin, onica, and galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it into a powder and place it in front of the Ark of the Covenant and the law in the tent of the meeting, where I will meet with you. And it what? It shall be the most holy. The most holy to you. So this is the incense God commands to be made. And again, the incense itself is to be pure and sacred. Look at those words. Pure. Pure means to be without defect. I mean, it is perfect. And sacred means it is set apart. It is to be holy. And he tells them how to specifically make it. And then he says, when you make this, it is not to be like any other incense. This incense represents our prayers, the sweetness of our prayers to God. It represents people reaching out to God in their own voices. So I want to stop for a minute and think about how beautiful this is. As if you're like me, has this ever happened where if you're prayed and you're not sure God heard you, 
Have you ever prayed and thought, man, there's probably a lot of people, I've thought this before, there's a lot of people probably praying right now, worldwide. And they probably got a lot bigger problems than what I got going on. So maybe mine is just kind of like background noise. There's a lot of other stuff happening. Everyone ever think that before? I'm the only one, right? No. <laughs> We're in church. The truth is, all of those thoughts are completely false. They are not true. God hears every one of our prayers. They matter to God because we are reaching out to him. We are trying to connect with him. And we, we reach, when we reach out to him, he knows that we want to be part of him, that we want him to be part of us. And the second thing that prayers do is they open up a pathway for us to hear God as well. We're showing God that his word, his instructions, his plan for our life, they matter to us. We want to know what he wants from us. We're saying, Lord, speak to me. Tell me what you want with my life. But we have to remember, though, when we pray, there's always one of three answers, right? Yes, no, and the one I really don't like, wait. Yes means yes, this request, this prayer is in line with my plans for you. Or no, no, this doesn't line up with my plans for you. And the other one that I have the most difficulty with sometimes, which just means wait, now is not the right time. Now here's what's cool. All those prayers which come from our hearts, our minds, God sees those as a sweet-smelling incense. So precious, he will not allow that specific scent to be used ever for anything else. We can't use it for anything else because it's that important to him. Those prayers indicate that his people who are lost are trying to reach him. And the incense that he commanded, that's what it represents. God doesn't want them to use this incense on their bodies or in their house like a little potpourri because it probably would have smelled nice. Absolutely not. That incense, represent, incense represents the prayers alone. In fact, it's so special and so unique. God spells out the punishment for those. Let's look at that, verses 37 and 38. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes incense like it, to enjoy its fragrance, must what? From his people. So it may be strange to us, to a degree, we think about how unforgiving God appears to be or is when it comes to this stuff, especially with the holy anointing oil and the incense. But if you, if you stop and think about what God is trying to do for his people, how important he wants us to understand that sin is bad and we need to be holy and what it is to, to reach him, to pray through him, then we understand that God really play, makes this, he places this in such high importance. And sin, sin, we can't escape sin. We can't hide it. No matter what we do, our sin is always there. It's always keeping us from God. But thankfully, this was just the beginning process in God's plan to save us. The tabernacle that we've talked about, the altar, the sacrifices, the anointing oil, the incense, all those things are pieces of the puzzle that God laid out for the world to find a way back to him to help us understand that we are sinful and that sin needs to be removed. And then most importantly, all those pieces point forward to the work of Jesus Christ. He's the one who can repair a relationship and make us whole again. It's only because of Jesus' death on the cross that we have hope, 
So no matter where you are in your day, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter when you pray, if you're not sure God's answering you, he is there. And he's created a way that we can all be saved. We can all have our sins paid for. And it's because of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Father, tonight we learned about the altar, the anointing oil, and the incense. We thank you for laying out a path that brings us back to you. We thank you for the law, the prophets, and your word. Most of all, we are thankful for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, the one who removed our sin, who washed us clean and gave us a new life in you. Because of him, we have hope. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.